Welcome to the Dublin Festival of History podcast, brought to you by Dublin City Council. In this episode from the 2019 festival, broadcaster Joe Duffy and journalist Freya McClements talk about their book, Children of the Troubles, which tells the stories of the young lives lost in the Troubles. The moderator is Martin Doyle, books editor of the Irish Times, and the episode was recorded at Printworks Dublin Castle on 20th of October 2019. Thank you all for coming. So my name is Martin Doyle. I'm books editor of the Irish Times. And today I'm going to be talking to Joe Duffy, um, who's a well-known RT broadcaster, presenter of Liveline and author of Children of the Rising and now co-author of Children of the Troubles with Freya McClements, who is a colleague of mine on the Irish Times, Northern Correspondent. Um, and a a writer in her own right as well. As you just heard, Freya has been delayed, so um, we're going to start off um, obviously talking to to Joe initially. Um, Joe, would you like to say a few words, first of all, please? Okay. Thanks. Good morning, everybody. Um, Apologies for Freya. She actually got two flat tyres, believe it or not, uh, driving over that hard border just outside... um, (laughs) Casa Blaney, but she's feverishly trying to make her way. And while she's not here, I can say uh, really good things about her because um, without Freya McClemens, uh, I couldn't have finished this book. She'd say the same about me, I think, but without Freya McClemens, I couldn't have uh, got, got through this incredible uh, task that just got bigger and bigger. There were five Kennedy brothers, enough for their own football team, playing in the driveway in front of their home in Hamilton Street in Belfast. They were known as the Kennedy Five-A-Sides, but 15-year-old James was the star. He took his school team all the way to the cup final and scored two goals. They were winning until their opposition equalised, but briefly, James was the whole school's hero. James was murdered In February 1992, one of five people who died when loyalist gunmen entered Sean Graham's bookmakers on Belfast Armour Road and sprayed it with bullets. James' father, Jack, said said afterwards that the bullet that killed James didn't just travel in distance, they travelled in time. Some of those bullets still haven't stopped travelling. It's now on the memorial outside the shop and it's also on the back of this book because of something that we heard over and over again from the families we spoke to during the research for for this book, those bullets are still travelling. We now know that James is one of 186 children, aged 16 and under, who died as a result of the Troubles. The first Patrick Rooney was killed 50 years ago in 1969. The last Michael McElveen died in 2006, more than three decades later. We know from talking to so many families that the loss is always with them, their parents, their siblings, their wider family circle, their friends and their communities. But all too often, their names have been publicly forgotten. Nine of the children in the book have never been publicly acknowledged as victims of the Troubles. And this is an omission we were uh, glad to remedy. Children died in their homes or at play or at work. They died in their prams or on their way to the shop or while fighting. They died because of childish curiosity, unexpected circumstance, or simply because violence came to the streets where they lived. Where possible, we made contact uh, with as many families as possible. It's based, the book is based on more than 100 original interviews, the majority with relatives of the children 
remembered in these pages. We are well aware for many of them, it was their first ever interview, yet day after day, we were overwhelmed by their dignity, their kindness, their generosity. Um, they placed their trust, trust in us, and over the three events we've had this week in Belfast, Derry, and Dublin, we were so pleased that so many families and so many relatives uh, turned up because they are their children, and this is uh, their book. Uh, there was many other people who uh, helped us and facilitated the interviews. There was Relatives for Justice in Belfast. There was um, Margaret Oman, Justice for the Forgotten in Dublin, Kenny Donaldson of the Southeast Fermanagh uh, Foundation and the Museum of Free Dairy. Um, Hachette Ireland came on board, and I think it's really important uh, that we acknowledge the role of Hachette Ireland because initially, when I started this project in 2015, there was an enormous reluctance on the part of RTE, firstly, uh, and on the part of the Broadcasting Authority of Ireland who rejected the idea, and on, on, on the, the part of publishers. But eventually, we persuaded Hachette, and I think they have done um, a fantastic job in in the presentation of the book and that it is a solid book it's not going to fall down behind the couch it's going to sit in those families homes hopefully it's going to sit in libraries or schools or whatever so we're deeply appreciative for publishers for uh, placing their trust and their faith and their investment it's their investment in the book um, people showed us their photographs their keepsakes the wooden rattle the pair of plimsolls the 50 year old school bag we were privileged that Families shared those precious memories with us, and they would stay with us. Uh, we tell the stories. I'll tell a few, a few of them uh, in a minute. I won't go into them now, especially the Dublin scenario. But we were deeply conscious that every single day of the year, every single day, at least 10 families are marking the anniversary deaths uh, of loved ones because of the conflict. Seamus Heaney wrote in the Cura Troy, no poem or play or song can fully right or wrong inflicted and endured. Neither can this book in itself right or wrong, but we hope we have done the memories of all the children justice. Thank you. That's very well said, Joe. Um, can you tell us a little bit, um, first of all, you, you wrote a book um, for the centenary of the Easter Rising called Children of the Rising, about the 40 children who were killed um, on Easter week. Um, can you tell us about the, you know, how that sort of um, inspired you then to turn to Children of the Troubles? You, you mentioned that there were certain parallels um, between the two. Obviously, there are differences as well. Well, the first, the first thing that struck me was I finished Children of the Rising, which was a completely accidental project, as people might know. I was asked by the Jack and Jill Children's Foundation to paint an Easter egg for 2013 to be one of a, a hundred people they asked. Obviously, they eventually got to me when Pat Kenny and Miriam all said no, and I couldn't. And I, I, I said, yeah, why not? Because I do a little bit of that nonsense. Though I never paint the hall stairs in London, I can tell you. But I, I, they, they sent in this big egg. I thought it was going to be that size. And I just sat there and I couldn't make anything of it. I couldn't make anything of it. Um, and then it suddenly struck me one day, hang on, it's, it's, going, it's, going to be, it's going on display in Easter, at Easter. The one I was doing was going to go into the Gresham Hotel, which is in O'Connell Street. And I said, it's for the Jack and Jill Foundation. I just said to somebody, how many children were injured in the Easter Rising? 
and uh, I went down to the wonderful Pierce Street Library um, and met Tara Doyle, who's here. Uh, it was a friend of mine, and Hugh Comerford. And Hugh is he's now retired, but he was an expert. And you said, he said, there's 500 books written. There's now 1,000, by the way. There's 500 books written about the Easter Rising. And we found one reference to one child killed, and that was Bridget McCain. And then I mentioned it, I think, on the radio program that I'm privileged to do. And then other people contacted me. What about my great-great-uncle, uh, Patrick Feddersen? And then it grew. And then we, we ended up around the corner here in Werber Street, births, deaths, marriages. We ended up with 40 death certs for children killed. And that week, these are, who died violently. They all died violently. So that's where that project began. But I also realised when I finished it in 2015, it was too late. It was 100 years coming after the rising. Children don't have children. Yeah. Children don't have grandchildren. Children don't have great-grandchildren. Children and, who die violently. Yeah, so, so, the, so the, the, the line goes out that way, rather that way. And so the problem is that as generations go by, of course they're never forgotten by their parents. Mm -hmm. Of course they're never forgotten by their siblings. And but as parents die, so I was uh, looking at the first child. And for the first year, it was just a desktop exercise. I did the internet, I did newspapers, I did the National Library. And the first child was Patrick Rooney killed in 1969, August 1969. I realised it's, it's the 50th. Like we were being interviewed the other day by a really brilliant broadcaster, and he stopped when he said, uh, he read out an interest and the first child was killed 50 years ago. He said, that couldn't be right. It is right. The first child was killed 50 years ago, and the last child was killed just over uh, 10 years ago. And um, that's, I said, well, the time to try and do this project and talk to parents is now. And even during the process of this book, a number of the parents died. But that, that was the reason and to try and memorialise them in that way. So in terms of motivation, I think some of the things you said is to, you know, to tell their stories, to record yeah. their deaths. Like it was striking the fact that I think um, you or Freya said that up until now there'd never actually been a definitive list there's of, the, of still, children who were... There still isn't, the Martin. There's the magisterial Lost Lives. The last edition was 1998. Mm -hmm. That was before the internet. Lost Lives is an incredible book. Um, but that was based on newspaper reports, which is the only way they could do it. Mm -hmm. If your death was in the newspaper, you're in Lost Lives. Yeah. If your death wasn't in the newspaper, mm -hmm. you're not in Lost Lives. Yeah. And uh, my initial research gave us about 160 children uh, in Lost Lives. And then there was as a tangential mentions of other children. And then you'd go and find other children. But we also included, and when families came forward to us and said, listen, my child was killed by... Uh, uh, there's one child there. I'll get to slide in a sec by by an army uh, ferret. Ferret, uh, yeah, just... armored vehicle. That's her there, Denise Ann Dixon. Um, she's playing out on the street in Belfast. Um, that that it's in February, and um, that photograph is taken about six weeks previously. That's our Christmas morning photograph, as you can see. Um, she was killed on the 8th of the 2nd, 1971. Um, she came home from school. If you can see in the, in the corner there, today is Monday, I'm a good girl, I talk to God. She was a gorgeous little child, let's see, as all children are. And uh, she was dead five hours later. She was knocked down um, by a British Army uh, convoy that didn't stop, probably didn't see her because the, the lead... Uh, 
vehicle was a, a ferret armored car, which basically has a letterbox as a, as a windscreen. A letterbox is a windscreen. And uh, she was knocked down. And, but the RUC never even investigated that as a road traffic accident, let alone, let alone uh, a death in the Troubles where, where there was a hit and run. But their family, uh, May and Jerry, we met, met them a good few times. They were with us in Belfast on Monday. They're adamant that Denise was a victim of the Troubles, that she would not have died if it had not been uh, for, for uh, the Troubles. Um, Freya, Freya will talk about this chap here, Rory Gormley, if I can, and maybe I'm, I'm running ahead of myself, but Rory Gormley would have been 61 last Monday. And that's, that's a reminder... They can ring me tomorrow, Tad. I'm only 1850 I've given them my job. I hate, I hate telling people to turn off your mobile phone. But without the mobile phone, I wouldn't have a job. Um, Rory Gormley would have been 61 uh, last Monday. Um, he was being driven to school uh, by his father, um, who was a senior medic in the Matter Hospital, with his brother and another pal. There was a bomb scare. He was in a school uniform, St. Malachy's school uniform, which was a Catholic school. The car was diverted through the Shank Hill, as it happened, and some opportunistic uh, gunman sprayed the car, basically, and killed, killed Rory. Rory, his family, I'm not, not breaking any confidences here, his family found an extraordinary, extraordinarily close family, as most families are, found it extraordinary extraordinarily difficult. They talk about him every day. I spoke to his sisters when we were writing the book. But they came last Monday and they were making the point that one of the brothers who came with them last Monday was in the car with Rory. And he hasn't been able to talk about what happened since, such as the tragedy. Like so many people who were with other people who were killed, they say, why wasn't it me? Why was it Rory? You know, the Survivor's guilt. But he said, but the family said, since the book and since the events around the book, they are now talking about it. And then the other thing that sits in my head is people say, well, what was it tough on people bringing it up again? And I remember we were in one, fa- one house in Fork Hill. Um, Martin McGuigan had been killed, uh, 15, and he killed with his pal, uh, James Keenan. And they were on their way to their first uh, disco show band in across the border actually in Monaghan with the memories that show band and they were walking five of them were walking they didn't have the money for a taxi they were walking to get a bus uh, trick acting along a road and they walked past this uh, hay abandoned hay truck and um, that was had a booby trap in it and the IRA group at the top of the hill taught the five of them where a British army patrol though the family say how they taught that because they were all smoking and trick acting but anyway, they pressed, they detonated the bomb. They killed two of the lads. Um, uh, Ray McGuigan, who again was with us at the beginning of the week, Ray is paralyzed ever since. The first time he went back to the actual location was with us about three months ago. Um, and, but that, that afternoon when we're talking to the two families, and the two families know each other, but they'd never got together to talk about what happened. And they brought photographs of the funeral. The lads are buried side by side. And they were saying... Um, I said at one stage, because it was extraordinarily traumatic, and I said at one stage, is, is this too difficult, bringing it back up again? Mm-hmm. And one of them said, it's never gone away. Yeah. How can you bring up something yeah. that's never gone away? Yeah. And that's... It might that's, be forgotten by the wider yeah, community, but, but to the families... And they were making the it's point... It's an eternal present. They were making the point that everyone else 
that's probably, I'm exaggerating a little bit. They said most other of the people involved in the conflict, and I know language is difficult as well, they have memorials to them. They have memorial marches. There's a memorial parades in their barracks back in England, or the RUC barracks. There's memorial marches to grave, graveyards almost every Sunday up the north. But the children, yeah. they said around, around where they are, there's a memorial, including to some of the people they believe did it, uh, who were subsequently killed in, 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 in the conflict. Mm-hmm. There's memorials to them, but there's no memorials to Martin. Now, do they make any difference? I don't know, but to the family. And since... We started talking, and they got together as families. They are um, they are trying to organise a memorial. It could be a stained glass window. Um, could I just say, like one, like I think that is one of the the positive outcomes of the book. Perhaps is that it kind of maybe brings people out of their individual silos of of grief, and they sort of, you know, it, because it's being shared publicly, maybe for the first time, you know, since their children were killed, it kind of it establishes a kind of a it as a kind of a social um, thing where the whole the whole of society remembers something rather than just individual victims' families. And like the the, the, the object of the book is not recrimination; it's remembrance, it's mm-hmm. reflection, it's uh, recollection, it's reclamation. Um, but it's not recrimination. People have to, and, and I suppose that the the overall object of the book is to humanise those numbers, mm. to say that each of those children... And remember, we only took a cohort of the victims. That's what I try, keep trying to... Like we only took 6% of the victims. Mm-hmm. The only criteria we had was age. 16 or under. Yeah, and, and if they die violently. And as we explain in the, in the foreword to the book, we were contacted by a number of people saying... Uh, is, is my relative a victim of the troubles? Like there was a family when all the refugees came, people remember came uh, south in 69. Um, they were, initially went to army camps, the Curragh camp. One family, the Coleman family, did, there was four of them, two adults, two children, weren't happy in the camp. So they, they, they basically hired a caravan, an old battered caravan, just off the, the Curragh, people know it there near Newbridge. And it was freezing. It was in late, late in that year, it was freezing, and they, they closed all the windows, and the four of them died of carbon monoxide poison. Now, they're referenced in the book, but they're not counted, and not counted by us either as victims of the Troubles. Yeah. There was two children killed in Dublin in 1974, uh, the two Boylan sisters. They're referenced in the book, but they're not regarded, and they're not counted as victims of the Troubles. And they were killed. There was a H-block uh, demonstration. It was 1984. There was a H-block People forget this. All the bridges in Dublin were blocked. Buses were hijacked, um, and every and, and a truck making its way to um, Sheriff Street sorting office couldn't get to Sheriff Street sorting office. He's from the country. The driver didn't know his way around, so he, he ended up going up a narrow street um, and crashed and mounted a footpath and killed the two two children in their pram. Mm-hmm. are they regarded as victims of trouble? Not in this book, but. I know, I know one historian, and he's a fine historian, is adamant that those children are victims of the troubles. Mm. But for, for the purpose of this, this project, uh, they're, they're mentioned in the foreword and they're referenced, um, but they're not, not included. And of course, you know, there's other ways of being a victim. Like you make the point that, you know, all the, 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 the relatives, it sort of spreads yeah. out like a kind of a, it is just, you know, the cracks in a pane of glass. Yeah. <laughs> and I, uh, 
if I can just, just take one example, mm -hmm. like, because the figures are meaningless. If I start reading out figures of 7,000 parents lost a child, uh, 14,000 grandparents lost a grandchild, 3,000 lost a spouse in the, in the conflict, 15,000 lost a sibling, um, 45,000 lost an aunt or an uncle, 21,000 lost a, a niece or a nephew dead, 115,000 lost a close. This is a population of 1.8 million, by the way. Uh, there were 500,000 victims. Uh, 170,000 people were directly bereaved. I just want to talk. See, see this chapter? I just to give an example. I won't delay because I'm conscious when Freya arrives, I want to give her the rest of the, the, rest of the session. Um, this, is, this is Michael McCartan, okay? Um, his mother's name is Molly Little, okay? She says she wouldn't have got through what she's got through in the troubles without her great fate. Her son, Michael, was shot and killed by the RUC as he painted the word Provost on a wall near his home on the Lower Armour Road in Belfast on the 23rd of July, 1980. The, the RUC said they thought he, was, he had a gun in his hand. The family's savagely denied and are deeply, deeply heartbroken. Molly's, Molly's brother, just to give an example, this, this one woman, this one woman. Molly's brother, William McIntyre, a father of six, had been shot dead by the UVF in the same area six months previously. Their mother had been knocked down and killed two years before on uh, University Street. That's Molly's mother. Molly's nephews, James McCartan, 21, and his brother, Gary, 17, were both murdered by loyalists. James was abducted, savagely beaten, and killed by a UDA gang in Belfast on October 3rd, 1972. And his brother, Gary, a father of one, was shot dead by the UVF uh, on May the 7th. Uh, in, 19, uh, in his own home, another relative, Noel McCartan, was shot and killed, also near the Ormo Road by the UVF on the eve of St. Patrick's Day. One week later, Noel, who's shot dead, his brother-in-law, John Hamilton, was also shot dead by the UVF. Molly's first husband, Charlie McCartan, had been seriously injured when the UVF bombed the Rose and Crown pub on the Lower Armour Road because it was a Catholic pub. Six people were killed, 17 others were seriously injured in the no warning. Another relative of the McCartan family, David Glennon, a father of six, was shot and killed by the UFF on March 8, 1973. Four years previously, his son, John David Glennon, was one of four children who disappeared without trace in the Belfast area between September 20th, 69 and January the 8th, 1970. No trace has ever been found of Jonathan Avon, 14, David Leckie, 12, Ronald Kirk, 16, who were from different parts of Belfast. The, the, I'll explain now in a sec. Two other boys went missing in similar circumstances on the 26th of November 1974. John Rogers and Thomas Spence, they disappeared from the Falls Road as they, as they uh, waited for a bus. Nothing has ever been heard of those boys. Though police, the police informed the Rogers family in 2001 that they were about to commence a, a dig in the garden of a well-known paedophile. This came to nothing. One of the major hindrances to the search for those six boys was that normal police detective work, such as door-to-door -door inquiries, would have been difficult. The RUC say impossible, and they, they felt they wouldn't get the cooperation and they'd be in danger if they start knocking on uh, homes in certain parts of Belfast. Uh, and in the 10 days leading up to the disappearance of John Rogers and Thomas Spence. To give you some background, those boys that disappeared in 74, 16 people were murdered in Northern Ireland, 10 of them in Belfast alone. Uh, there were people on both sides of the Irish Sea were also reeling, this is in 74, from the no-warning IRA pub bombing in Birmingham on November 21st, 1974, when 21 people were killed. So you have the victims, and then you have the fact that if, if, if four children disappeared in the space of eight weeks, 
in this city or any city disappeared mysteriously. They weren't, no one, no one regards them as uh, victims of the Troubles. They regard them as being abducted by uh, a paedophile or a group, of, a group of them. But if four children disappeared in any city mm. uh, in a short period, there would, be, there would be mayhem, to say the least. But because Belfast was in turmoil, 1972, 500 people were killed. 40, 40 yeah. children were yeah. killed. As you well know, Martin, 40 children were killed uh, in 1972 alone. So it's hard, to, it's hard for us, I think, especially living in the South, to remember the, the, the mayhem. One of the, uh, another chap called Kevin uh, McManaman, gorgeous boy, um, he was killed by loyalists on the same day that his uncle was killed by Republicans, mm -hmm. okay? It was Easter Sunday. Uh, both of them are buried together in Milltown Cemetery, just inside the, the wall on, uh, near the road. And um, uh, Kevin's mother, who was with us again on, on uh, Monday in Belfast, when we were talking to her nearly two years ago now, she pointed out that we said the age, the age on his headstone has been changed. And was, he was actually younger than he was in the head. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. uh, and she said, well, this is what happened. I was in turmoil, chaos. She said, it was chaos. You have no idea. And the undertaker came to me and said, well, is that what you want on the headstone? Kevin aged. They had him down as, as 15. He was 13. He was younger anyway. And she just said she couldn't even, she couldn't even read it, couldn't even see it. And she just said yes. Mm -hmm. And when they went up to, when the headstone was done, they said, someone said, mommy, that's, that's not Kevin's age. Yeah. It's, Kevin is two years younger mm -hmm. than that. But mm -hmm. she said it was just, it gives you a glimpse of the she, yeah. Her brother and her son are buried in the same, the same, the same grave. Shocking. It's worth saying as well that those disappeared um, in another sort of twist of tragedy. Lyra McKee, the journalist who was murdered um, by Republican dissidents in, in Derry earlier this year, she, is wor she was working yeah. on a book about the, the disappeared, those disappeared boys called The Lost Boys, I think, yeah, yeah, which exactly. paper were to publish, and that book will now never be yeah. completed. It's, um, it's a, com a complete... Well, in one sense, it shouldn't be a mystery, but it is a mystery. If we, if we remember, which we do down here, the names of Mary Boyle, Philip Cairns, everyone, I think most people in this room will know them, um, they don't remember those children's names. But mm -hmm. also, we're, we're, we're not... Down here, there was, there was a chap called Patrick Stanley. Um, I don't think I have him on the slideshow, but Patrick was killed in Baltorbet in um, 19... in the Baltorbet bombings. And um, Patrick was one of two children killed in that bombing, a no-warning loyalist car bomb three days after Christmas. He was, uh, he was a great little sportsman. He was from Clara, County Offaly, and he wanted a new pair of boots. He got some things for Christmas, didn't get the boots, and he, was, he did odd jobs at the local gas bottle delivery firm and... On the three days after Christmas, instead of playing with his pals, he took the job as a helper on the truck, went up north, came, we're heading back to Clara, came over the border, last delivery in Beltorbet, shop closed, and the driver said, well, we, we may stay here overnight in a and b or whatever. Went to the phone box to ring his mom to say, um, press button A or whatever, um, I'm, I'm going to be here. Uh, he never got to make the phone call. He was found, he was killed in the phone box, in the phone box. It took... The PP called to that home in Clara five, six hours later. The Gardaí called to that house in Clara 40 years later. 40 years at the request of the family. Yeah. They, they wrote to the commissioner saying, Is there, we've never had a guard to our house 
saying what happened or what theories are there or is there no one was ever there's only of the children killed only 15 percent of them have actually has has resulted in a conviction it is shocking to think like you know when you watch you know dramas about murders on television you forever sort of see say liaison officers calling around to the family home keeping them informed yeah. of the progress of an investigation whereas there's a family and they waited 40 years for any information at all yeah. um I was going to say, Joe, like the book is wonderful in the sense of micro histories. Like mm-hmm. every child that was died violently, there is the story of their life, not just how they died, but also you've gone to the trouble to actually kind of, you know, reconstruct their personalities and all the rest of it. But if I could also sort of say, you know, there is put all of those together and you create a kind of a macro history. Mm-hmm. Like Mary McAleese said, there were deaths that changed the course of history, forced people out of bunkers and allowed us to glimpse our common humanity. So whilst every death was equal, I think it's fair to say that there were certain deaths mm. that really kind of changed history or changed the course of the troubles. For example, um, the Maguire children who were killed um, when the, the British Army uh, shot the driver, an IRA driver, um, trying to escape. And small children and a baby were killed yeah. and that led to the formation of the the peace people yeah. which you know they won the nobel prize yeah. they kind of brought communities together like from the shankill and the falls women marching together partic- particularly women there was a sense that you know enough is enough the toll that this was taking on both communities was unbearable um and when you read back at the the reaction the peace people got it's it's worth there's there's it's worth reading back at the reaction that they got from some of the main players in in the whole conflict at the mm-hmm. time. If you look at the Warrington bombing, um, where Jonathan Ball was killed and Tim Parry was killed, that led to the. It's, it's still there, actually. What the it's a magnificent organisation called the the Jonathan Ball Tim Parry Peace Foundation, and they are currently working with the survivors of the Manchester Arena bombing mm-hmm. about two years ago. Um, but like Jonathan Ball, who's the other child, Tim is Tim is mentioned a lot, rightly so, because Wendy and Colin are just so. There's Freya Net, all the way from Northern Ireland, Freya Freya McClements, ladies and gentlemen. stopped at the border, but I'm afraid it's much more prosaic. It was a flat tyre outside Castle Blaney, so uh, at least I'm here. Welcome, Freya. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, Mark. We were just talking briefly, Frey, about the, the, the movements that emerged, uh, and I was explaining to Jonathan Ball as the other child, yeah. and when we contacted Jonathan's family, the first thing they said to us, would you please correct the spelling of his name? It's in every book, every newspaper. Every time you met Jonathan, he was only uh, three, every time you met him, he said, my name is Jonathan with a H, J-O-H-N-A-T-H-A-N. Um, his mother, Mary Comerford, 43 years of age, left the family home the day, that Saturday, it was the eve of Mother's Day, that Saturday, uh, because um, Jonathan was killed instantly, uh, Tim, di- Tim died a few days later. She left the family home in distress, never returned to the family home. She was in her, on her second marriage, so to speak, with Wilf. Um, that was Wilf's only child. Mary had previous children. She lived on her own. Um, she became a recluse and she died, oh, sorry, was found dead uh, 13 years later on the anniversary of the Warrington bombing. Um, the Warrington bombing led to that peace movement, but it's also, when you look at the, 
that phrase which I mentioned earlier on about bullets uh, never never stopped traveling. Maybe if we um, go back to let Freya talk about, say Colin Nickel. Do you want to talk about Colin Nickel? Yeah. Co- Sorry, Martin, if you want to. No, no, carry yeah, on. Yeah, yeah um, Colin Nickel is one of the ones that, one of the, the children that really struck a chord with me. And I'm sure Joe has explained already. Um, people sometimes ask us, you know, to pick out particular children. It's really impossible because every one of them, I think, is is with me. And there's, there's sort of little details about them. But Colin Nickel, for me, and you can see he's this gorgeous little little baby. He's he's just about one year old in that picture. And that's him uh, on the beach in, in Port Rush up on the coast in County Antrim. And he was from Belfast and Colin was, was actually adopted. And his dad, Jackie, told me about how he'd been... You know, he'd been he'd been uncertain. You know, his wife they couldn't have children, and his wife really wanted to adopt. And he, you know, he didn't know. And then they they met Colin. And he just fell fell in love with him. And, and um, this was around about the time that they adopted him. It was 1971, and, and the the song "Sweet Caroline" was was on the on the radio an awful lot. And and his dad Jackie used to sing to hold him and sing to him "Sweet Colin Mine." And you just got a real sense of just the love for just this little baby that had completely completely changed their lives. And the the this is one of very few photos they have of Colin and you can see his um there's a a sandcastle beside him in his pram and he just looks just this lovely real happy sort of chubby baby um and Colin was was killed along with another um little baby Tracy Munn who was two um in a a a bombing on on the Shankill Road in Belfast in December 1971 and there were two adults uh, and and the two babies killed and, and they were walking past um Colin's mother had actually gone to England that day because her nephew had been killed in a road accident. She'd gone to help her sister and his dad, Jackie, was, was playing football. So he'd, he'd left Colin over to, to his granny, to, to Jackie's mum, to mind him. Um, and um, the, the neighbour had come in and said, look, I'm taking Tracy a walk to the shops. Will I bring Colin? So they go up, up, up to the shops Saturday afternoon coming up to Christmas um, and, and this, this bomb um, explodes uh, outside the... the Shankill Furniture Showroom and, and really sadly and this is one of the things that, that you know and that we, you know, we saw in the north over, over so many years is that bomb was actually a retaliation for a bomb the previous week um, outside McGurk's Bar in North Belfast um, which killed a hu- huge number of people it was the largest single um, atrocity um, up until and certainly until the Dublin Monaghan bombings but there were two children killed in it as well and this was was the retaliation and Colin and Tracy um, were both killed and the, there's an image that you would sometimes see um, that, that's that's very powerful and very well known and it, it's of the the firemen carrying Colin wrapped Colin's body wrapped in a blanket out, out of out of the rubble um, and the beside it you see the picture of of Colin um, and that's that's Colin's rattle. Um, and I was sitting with Jackie and talking with Jackie, and Jackie says, "Hold hold on a second. He says, "I want to go and get something." And he went upstairs and he brought this down. And this is Colin's wee rattle. And I don't know if you can see on the nose of the little mouse, there's little teeth marks. Um, and he handed me the rattle, and I and I I said, "You know, do you mind if I feel the teeth marks?" And he let me feel. And this was the teeth marks from from where Colin had chewed on the rattle. And Jackie keeps. That that, he, that stays beside his bed. His, his Colin's father. It's beside his bed, um, and he said that that's that's going with me when when I go. He says that's that's going with me. So that's why you know I think Colin of all to feel his teeth marks and those fifty. It's nearly fifty years since that little baby was killed, and that time just Very vanishes. Powerful. 
I can't help but think of another story about um, involving teeth in the book, which uh, you don't actually say it to you, but uh, you talk about, do you want to tell the story about um, yeah, what happened? Yeah, and, and the, this is, um, yeah, it's, ironically it's about teeth, but there, there's one of the things that we try to, to get across, across in the book, and that obviously... Uh, I mean, I, I grew up in, in the North. I was born in 1981, so so I sort of grew up in, in the second half, but if you like. And, and a lot of people, I think, have the image that that it, that it, that it, it was like this, you know, that it, that it was soldiers on the streets in the army and that, that it, it was very dark. And obviously that, that was part of it. Um, but I, I grew up in, in a little village on, on the coast in County Derry, um, which, because it was more rural, um, wouldn't have been, it wouldn't have been, the scenario you would have had in parts of Belfast and parts of Derry where there really was effectively war on the streets. But I still remember as a child, you know, the bomb scares and, and, and the, the checkpoints and, and, you know, my family, we had a, we had a business that, that was blown up at one stage and things like that. Um, but there, there's the, the story that I include, I include in the book um, is it's just, it's to try and convey, I think the normality of that, because to me as a child, I didn't know any, any different. That was just, just the way it was. Um, and, and I, I write about, and I don't identify it as myself, but I, but I, I write about, um, what one afternoon and it was myself and my little brother and my mom and my granny, and we were having our lunch in, in a, this cafe at the top of a department store, It'd be a bit like the equivalent of Cleary's or Arnott's or somewhere like that. So we were, we were having our lunch and there was a bomb scare, which, which happened. So where everybody is evacuated and we're all being, ushered down the street and I had this wobbly tooth and I remember so clearly as we're going along the street my, my tooth fell out and I remember stopping dead on on, on the pavement and saying to my mom oh look my, my tooth fell out and she grabbed me by the arm and said something like come on um, and I remember just being so annoyed that this really big important thing had happened to me that my tooth had fallen out this was a massive deal and she wasn't even paying attention. And, and looking back now as an adult, um, that obviously t- says something about that the bomb scare was so normal to me that I didn't even think anything of that. And actually, I, I was telling my mum about this um, the other night, um, and she'd totally forgotten about it. She didn't remember it at all. And, and her words to me were, well, I suppose bomb scares were so common, you know, n- nothing happened in that one, so why would, you, why would you remember that one? It is amazing. Obviously, I grew up in the north with, given my accent, and things that I remember are things like, you know, every town centre you had control zones yeah. where, you know, you literally were not allowed to park your car on the high street um, unless there was somebody in it because an un- unattended vehicle could so easily have been a car bomb. Yeah. Um, and then another thing, my parents had a shop as well. And there's this thing on regularly on the news, you'd sort of have a news flash saying, you know, there's been an incendiary device found in a shop in Bambridge. Could all key holders please return yeah. to their premises and search their shops? Yeah. And I'm kind of thinking, you're telling us there might be a firebomb in our shop. Go home or go back in open up and have a route around and see if you can find them. I'm thinking, no, I'll leave it to the insurance. Yeah, because I remember that. And and up until the time when there was the the explosion in the town centre that that destroyed our shop and many others, and I I remember that on the TV night after night and my dad having to go in to our shop. And and only as an adult, I think it was us having this conversation. Mm. It's suddenly, this is completely crazy. You know how is he supposed to a even know what this looks like and b if he found it you know what what do you do <laughs> you know i mean it's a complete but again at the time you just told, you just accepted it yeah. as, as normal yeah. didn't you yeah. one little story we discovered this week you see the cover of the book the the two children and the soldier in the middle that was taken in Derry um 40 years ago 
um, at the Guildhall in Derry on Tuesday night, the boy with the ice cream on the, on the bike, he landed, he arrived in and said, that's me on the cover. Mm. Um, his name is Eamon Moore. Eamon, yeah. He's 46 and he's from a very working class area in Derry, but he's now principal of a primary school looking after children. And he was a gorgeous man, wasn't he, Fred? Yeah, he was And great. he said that Ken, who's the other child over the far side, uh, he still sees him and he's doing, he's doing good. And he said, I, I often wondered what happened to the British soldier in the middle? Mm-hmm. What happened to the British soldier in the middle? Because if you go through the book, um, there are photographs of British soldiers and um, they look, I know there was a, they didn't send anyone uh, uh, under 18 uh, after an atrocity, but they look like children themselves. Mm-hmm. Fred, I just, I, I'm very conscious of, um, Fred, do you want to do the, I'm, I'm cutting across you, Martin, but I want Not to do Fred, yeah, the, the, the plastic bullet. I've Paul, Paul Withers here. Yeah, pa- Paul, yeah, because funny, because Martin had asked both of us sort of pick a sort of pick out a few children to talk about. And and Paul is is one, um, again, who really struck a chord with me because um, he's, so he's from Derry, which is where I'm from. But he, his mother, um, again, was one of the first people that I met sort of at, at the start of this. And, and one of the things you'll see in the book, and there's a specific chapter about the children who were killed by rubber and plastic bullets, um, as well as the individual entries. And, and, and it's because um, there were so many child fatalities as, as a result of those. And actually, I was just reading on, on the news there, um, there's, I think, two 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 people have been blinded in, in Barcelona um, because of um, rubber rubber balls or rubber bullets fired by fire, fired by the police. Um, and, and actually one of the points that the, the parents of these children made to us is about, you know, they, these are still being used. Um, and Paul was, was one of, one of these, the children who was killed. He was killed by um, a rubber bullet that, that was fired, uh, fired by the RUC, actually, um, allegedly during rioting um, in Derry in 1981. Um, I've spoken to a couple of eyewitnesses, actually, um, as to what happened, and some of them are still very traumatised. There's one woman talked about looking down. She, she happened to be looking out of a window. Their flat overlooked where this happened, and she said she saw the RUC man just kneel, get down on one knee, aim, and just fire, and it hit him, hit him straight, between, straight in the forehead. Mm. And, and the awful thing about these is that these weapons were used supposedly because they were non-fatal. You know, they, they, weren't, they weren't supposed to kill anybody. And I, I don't know if, if, if anybody here has seen them, but if you talk about a, a rubber bullet, and one of the reasons it was caused, called a rubber bullet was to give the idea of it being so something almost a bit comical. I mean, they're, they're huge things. You know, the, the, the start of that chapter talks about, um, you know, a, a rubber bullet is, is, is the size of a child's fist and twice as long. If I put my two hands together like that, that's roughly the size of it and it's got a big tapered tip. A plastic bullet, it, it doesn't have the tip, but it's, you know, you know, it's a really big, solid projectile. You know, you hit somebody with that, mm-hmm. you're going to do them serious damage, uh, if not kill them. Um, and we see there were, there, were, there were eight children who were killed as a result of, of rubber and plastic bullets. <laughs> Countless more were blinded. Richard Moore uh, in Derry, who went on to found the charity Children in Crossfire, was blinded by a rubber bullet. But some of the injuries were horrific. And Paul, Paul was just just a lovely, ordinary, you know, down to earth. He, he sounds like a great kid. And this would have been myself and Joe. We feel like we've got to know them all because Paul. Um, he, he, he was 15 when, when he was killed. He was into, he loved the Boomtown Rats. Um, he had all these punk badges that he used to wear on his, on his jacket. And actually, I still know somebody in Derry who remembers him coming into this particular bookshop to buy badges for, for his collection. Um, and he, he, was, he was a sort of, he was always helping people. 
But his idea, his, his mum laughs because she talks, but his idea of helping, he would go around to help his granddad do the dusting. Um, and his idea of dusting was he would lift the ornament up, blow like this, and then set it back down again, you know? Um, so, so this is, I think, the thing that both Joe and I, you know, we really find when doing, is that, you know, you feel like you get to know all these children. And I suppose one of the reasons that I want to talk about Paul is because, as with so many of the children in the book and, and also the children who were killed by rubber and plastic bullets, um, his family is still campaigning on his behalf. Um, so the, 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 the authorities at the time judged that there should be no prosecution against the member of the RUC who, who shot him. Um, and it's been reinvestigated a number of times and, and it's been found, for example, that there was no proper investigation, mm-hmm. but still nobody has, has been held accountable for that. And there, there are files that are held in the, the National Archives in Kew, files marked top secret with Paul's name on them, which is really unusual, mm-hmm. um, that are locked away until at least 2069, um, if not longer. And his mother makes the point, she says, by the time those are released, mm-hmm. nobody who knew Paul will be alive. You know, so she, and, and I mean, that's the, this year they've been yeah. campaigning. It also that. makes you wonder what are they trying to hide? Yeah, well, well, exactly. And she makes this point, you know, she says, you know, he was a 15 year old boy. Mm-hmm. You know, what could possibly yeah. be in these files that is so secret that it is, you know, in the interests of national security that it cannot be released? And that there's organizations in the North, the Pat Finucan Center for Human Rights is one of them, and they've campaigned on this. And some of the thing that the documents, and it's listed in this chapter as well, but some of the, the documents that they've found, they talk about um, British scientists at Port and Down, where they did all the sort of the nuclear testing and things, testing pla- plastic bullets on, on pigs, and knowing that they were dangerous, that they were too dangerous to be used against humans, and trying to warn of this, yeah. and their warnings be ignored. Like, what I like to say, like, the book is wonderful, and the individual stories are very important. It is really important to, as Joe says, to humanise um, the statistics. But I think, you know, inevitably, and in some of the the chapters, uh, the essays um, that you've written, you kind of do pull stuff together. But I think it is worth, you know, making note of some things. Like, for example, there are striking patterns that become apparent when you, you know, when you read all the individual stories. For example, the fact that 80% of the dead children were Catholic. Yes. This is at a time when the Catholic population in the North was anywhere between 33 and maybe 40%. That 29% of the dead were in West Belfast, 24% in North Belfast. Only 15% of the deaths resulted in convictions. Um, 26% of, this, of the deaths were killed by security forces. Perhaps it's not surprising that there were so few convictions given that from 1970 to 1973, when the army were responsible for a death, there was an unspoken agreement uh, with the head of the RUC, Chief Constable, that there would be no police investigation, that the only investigations were by the Royal Military Police. And they said it was pretty much sitting down, tea and a sandwich, tell us your story, and then that was basically the result or the extent yeah, and, and, and one of the things that's really telling in that is that, I mean, both Joe and I think it's it's shocking that, you know, 15% of 186 children is very few where, there, where anybody has been convicted of murder of manslaughter, but none of those convictions are are, are, are in connection with the security forces. They're all either, they're, they're pretty much 50-50 um, Republicans and loyalists, yeah. but none of, none of the... And Mary McAleese forces. made the point in there when she launched the book in Dublin on Wednesday that the deaths of a lot of children were surrounded by a tissue of lies, mm-hmm. obviously the ones you referred to, but 
Uh, for example, when Kathleen Feeney, uh, a dairy girl, a real dairy girl in terms of when, when sh she was shot, she was shot in, in by the IRA and who were trying to shoot a British soldier in Derry in 71. And um, the following, the, the, the IRA denied it. Not only did they deny that they had shot Kathleen, uh, they went out the following day in Derry and shot a British soldier in retaliation for Kathleen's shooting. Um, and the family, well, first of all, when Kathleen was found, just the Derry girl reference, the family found a loose cigarette in her pocket. She didn't know, didn't know she smoked. They found a signed photograph of Dan, who just won the Eurovision. Um, they found some of her letters, which are they, the family have found so poignant, but so hilarious. Um, the, 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 to friends, pen, pen friends, people she'd met in Monaghan. Um, but the IRA denied, as they, as they did, and many could deny that they had any, had any hand actor part in the shooting of Kathleen. And it took maybe 25 years for the IRA to, the family campaign, mm -hmm. they, they, to find out. And, and the bullet that was used was not a British Army bullet. Mm -hmm. And the family eventually got an apology from, mm -hmm. directly from Martin McGuinness, actually, in fairness. Um, for what happened Kathleen. But for a long number of years, the IRA said that was not us. So Mary McAleese's point, mm -hmm. whatever it was about children, obviously because it was so tragic that everyone, everyone, and now for the state to do it is just outrageous and, mm -hmm. and continued to do it. But um, it happened in a lot with a lot of the children, unfortunately. Yeah. And, and, and there's, there's again, not to cut across you, Martin, but there, there, there's, there's a, a girl in the book called Martha Campbell, um, who was killed in 1972, and, and the historical inquiries team in the north um, investigated that um, much more recently, and they 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 could they, they didn't know essentially they didn't know who killed her. She was shot in West Belfast. She she was calling up to see her friend, and there there was firing, and. All, all three, if you like, of the, sort of the groups of protagonists. So it, it could have been the army, it could have been loyalists, it could have been the IRA. They, they don't know. And in the HET report, and I think it's so, so powerful, they, they, they write that, um, that, it, that it seems incredible that a child could be shot dead in the street in broad daylight and nobody investigated it, but that that's actually, that's, that is actually exactly what happened. And I think that's shocking. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Joe, I wonder what your memories of the Troubles were like. Like Freya, mm -hmm. um, you know, you grew up in the North and then you became a journalist and you were pretty much immersed in that as, as a subject, I guess. Joe, you grew up in Dublin. Yeah. Um, like, obviously, the Troubles came south on occasion to Bill Turbot, as we mentioned, but maybe most, most particularly um, the, the, the Dublin and Monaghan bombings. But, you know... Is there the sense that, like down here, like people were sort of, first of all, very sympathetic to, say, maybe the Catholic community in particular in the north, but then over time maybe turned off by or appalled by some of the atrocities committed by the IRA uh, and other organisations? Um, there was a weariness, and as, as I said, even when I, I started a project and before I came across Freya, um, I found it very difficult to get any. Um, support in terms of publishing it because I was told well people down here it is, they see the word troubles on the front of a book and they they keep walking for the next book or whatever but it, they it's a turn off was the phrase used but I know for me I was born in 56 um, so I would have been 13 around 69 um, I remember hitching I don't know why I did it I don't know how I was allowed to do it but I hitched to Belfast I got a bus out to the airport and hitched to Belfast didn't know anything about Belfast. I've been up there. We had relatives up in uh, Port Stewart at one stage. 
landed, the, the lift I got landed me at Queen's University that side and I went into the student union and then I went for a ramble around Belfast and then anyone knows Belfast, the Shankill Road and the Falls Road are so close mm. and I was trying to find my way back to Hitch. I remember a bloody Sunday um, because I would have been 16 and people are surprised that none of the, the, the victims of Bloody Sunday are in the book but if we had extended it the, the age to 17, a lot of them would have been in, would have been in the book. I remember Bloody Sunday. I remember the demos. I remember making placards in the school in Ballyfermot that day. Took a wind to town that night. Went home with my placard to my mother, who promptly walloped me up the stairs to my bedroom and locked me in and wouldn't let me go into town because that was the night that the the uh, the British Embassy was was burnt down. But, but I'd like to say it was the end of your student activism student show, activism, but yeah. <laughs> but the, the only the only thing I say and I say it to my own children. We woke up every single day for nearly 30 years, every single day, and you turned on the news, the radio invariably, and the lead story was a man has been found hooded and murdered in a ditch. Two RUC men have been blown up with a bomb under their car. A UDR man and his daughter have been killed by a car, car bomb. Three IRA, uh, or three, three IRA people have been killed by the SAS, unarmed IRA. Um, Children were killed again and again. Children doing good deeds who were... One, one child uh, was, was killed by an undercover uh, SAS, um, SAS crew because he, had, he was up visiting a graveyard. He found some guns, ran home, went home, told his dad. His dad rang the police and said, my son has found uh, guns in a graveyard. And instead of the RUC or the British Army... Um, removing the guns they did as the SAS did a stakeout yeah and he went back John went back the next day the next day just to see what happened he was he was driving his father's tractor and he went back and he went into the graveyard to see was had the guns been what, what had happened you know a childish curiosity and he was murdered by the SAS he was murdered because they thought he was coming to collect the guns even though he's the one who told them uh, his, his family had done the good the, 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 the good deed so there's there's Awful stories buried, still buried, unfortunately, in terms of the truth about what happened. But, but as I say, down here, we've gone from at every single day, that, that hor horror every single day. And I say to my kids, listen, lads, you're, you're, oh, you're turning on or we're turning on the telly or you're opening your mm. laptops and you're reading about Brexit nonstop and this nonstop. It, I know it's complicated and I know it's depressing at times, but my God, it Brexit and the democracy that surrounds Brexit and the, the Democrat is a grain of sand compared to what we went through. Mm -hmm. And we just have to, mm -hmm. have to say to people, and if, if there's one, uh, maybe we, we, this is not a preachy book, but I am a preachy person, which is a problem. But I would say to anybody, like um, that phrase from Jack Kennedy, the bullet that killed James, didn't just travel in distance, it travelled a time, and it's still travelling because of the effects I had on his family. Anyone who, anyone thinking of putting a bullet in a gun for the circumstances that we're now in is just way out of order. Way, they should be biting the bullet, not loading the bullet. There's no justification because once you unleash a bullet, once you unleash a bullet, you have no idea, and I'm speaking metaphorically as well, you have no idea where it's going to end. And I was really shocked um, 
to, to, two weeks ago on the wonderful BBC series about the Troubles. So here a man, uh, his name is Des Long. Isn't that his name? No, yeah. he's, he's, he's sitting in this beautiful home in Limerick, surrounded a oh, gorgeous um, library of books. Beautiful, you know, that type of drawing room. Gorgeous, really healthy, strong. He's in his 70s or 80s. And he's sitting there giving an interview saying that the... the Younglets that are being used in Derry at the minute to petrol bomb the RUC Land Rovers with little effect because anyone knows they're almost bombproof and bulletproof. He's saying they they are the natural descendants of the men of 1916, and this guy is sitting down in Limerick encouraging those kids to risk their lives to do that. Do that. Um, there's still a lot of hypocrisy around. Well, there's still a lot of slow, like you know, they said about the Good Friday Agreement yeah. and the Sunning Deal for slow learners, and you know, it's disturbing that some people have still not learned the yeah. you know the price that you know the toll that war takes on on families what about actually patrick maxwell there sorry paul maxwell yeah paul yeah, maxwell paul um, maxwell yeah so we'd like to talk about yeah the, the, this is my favorite photo um in the whole book and the, this is paul um paul was was 15 when he was killed and he was one of two children who were killed in uh, along with um Lord Mountbatten, um, in in the when Mountbatten's boat was was blown up by the IRA off Mullock Moor, mm-hmm. um, which in, is in one of the most beautiful parts of, of the world. It's beautiful of part of the world, and this is actually the beach in in Mullock Moor. Um, so if you know it, there's a little harbour, and then the beach kind of curves around, and that's the beach. And the Maxwell family used to go on holiday to Mullock Moor every year. They were from Enniskillen, and in part, it was like many families in the north did. It was you would escape over the border. To, to peace, you know, it would be away from, from the troubles. Um, and this is this photo was taken when Paul was much younger, but he used to do this thing where he, that's both his parents there and they, he would stand on their hands. And I just love it because it's such an image of sort of just carefree, you know, you know, it, 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 it's to me it sums up what childhood should be and mm-hmm. the fact that it's on that beach. And I, I went back to, um, to Mullockmore, both Joe and I, um, in fact, were in, in Mullockmore with... Um, with Paul's two sisters, um, Donna and Lisa. And, you know, you, you just got a real sense for them of just this this remarkable boy. You know, he was 15. He, he was always working. He was always doing things. He'd got this job. Um, he loved boats, loved the sea, and he got this job as Mountbatten's boat boy for the summer. And he absolutely loved it, you know. Um, and you just, and his, his two sisters talked to us about what, what they called the perished potential mm. of, of Paul and of all the other children, you know, what he might have gone on to be. And you just get the sense that he would have gone on to be, you know, just 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 just, just a good man, you know, and, and he would have been probably a father yeah. and he would have been, you know, they think he might have had a business, you know, he, he was always finding ways of making money, but then he would give money to his sisters because she was too busy going out with her boyfriend to actually have a job. So he would like lend, lend his money, but never ask for it back. And it, it's just, you know, to me, that picture, it sums up, you know, what childhood should be, but it also it sums up, you know, the, the loss and the waste of, of this book. It also know. speaks to a point Joe was making earlier that, you know, like some people say, oh, what are you doing dragging the past up or sort of upsetting people, upsetting families? But, you know, suffer, or like mourning the loss of a loved one isn't something that you sort of switch off. You know, they're going back to the place where their, their brother was murdered because it's also the place where their brother was perhaps most happy. Well, that, 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 that's, that's exactly it. And, and they... The family, they still go back every year and his two sisters have brought their own children there and they, they still go back. And it's precisely that. It, it's because that's where he was most happy. And, and they also felt that, you know, everybody in, in the village 
um, was behind them. Everybody in Mullockmore was was shocked at what happened, and for them never to have come back mm. would have been almost like turning, 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 you know, turning their backs on them. Yeah, and I think, yeah. I mean, you're absolutely right in terms of what Joe says about you know, you know, you know, this isn't you can't bring it back for anybody because it never goes away. It's with them all the time. And I think one of the things that was most moving for me in that we we had three different launches last week, and and the one in Belfast in particular, there were there were a lot of family members there and and we we were speaking about joe was actually speaking about um different children and and i could see some of their relatives in front of me and they were all they were just holding the book Mm -hmm. like this and and you knew how much it meant to that you know and they told us how much it meant to them that you know that actually that somebody had asked and that somebody had had acknowledged you know that paul or that colin or that you know all of these other children you know were here and, and 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 were loved and, you know, I mean, Martin talked, but, you know, I, I'm a journalist. I write an awful lot of words every day. And most of them, you know, that phrase about, you know, t- tomorrow's fish and chip paper, you know, most of them are gone quite quickly. But this mm-hmm. is something, certainly, I think it's the thing in terms of everything I've done that I'm most proud of because it's something that, that that's there and that will last and will remember those children. Yeah. Just, I think we've got to wrap up yeah. um, very quickly now. Yeah. Um, but want to just um, open it up to questions from the audience. Um, would anyone like to... Ask a question. Um, I just grew up during the Troubles, even though I live in the South. One of the reasons I won't be buying the book is that I am trying to... The Troubles were so horrible. I'm trying to forget the damn thing completely. I'm interested in history, but I stop at 1969 for that reason. Sorry. I don't know if anybody wants to... Do either of you want to respond to that? Well, or? I, I mean, what, what, what I would say is that, funny, um, my, my dad actually finds this book quite difficult and he obviously remembers a lot more of the you know he 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 would have been sort of a teenager you know in 1918 and 1969 uh, and he finds it very he just finds it too traumatic um but what he did say to me, he says look i i'm not going to read it this is because i just find it too difficult but um he said if if anybody's going to do this he said i'm, I'm glad it, it's you doing it and obviously he would say that he's my father but i think one of the things that we've heard time and time again from and a lot of the groups who work with families is they've commended us on on our approach you know on the way that we've dealt with families and I mean you know li- like it or not this is a big part of this is a big part of where we still are in the north you know a lot of the issues that are raised in this haven't been resolved and I think if there's one thing I've learned um, through this is that it has to be talked about so I mean to- totally totally respect your position yeah. I understand that um, but I think you know I would say it's a tough read I find it very hard even to read the book, but I think it's a very important one. And I would say, just very quickly, I'd say, like, as a, as a journalist, like, one of the things that I do says, like, you know, my day job is books editor at the Irish Times. So, like, every few months, um, somebody, you know, a distinguished writer dies, for example, Kieran Carson recently. And one of the things that I would do is sort of ring around asking fellow writers and friends, whatever, to you know, to pay tribute, but to also sort of speak to the character. And I think it's quite a cathartic thing for friends and family to do that. And it's also, it's an important thing to kind of pay tribute. And a book like this, it isn't sort of, the focus isn't so much on the violent deaths of these people. It's about the vibrant lives that they had before they died. And it really is a kind of, a, it's, a, it's a different way of, of telling a history. And it's kind of, it is putting a human face on on stuff that you know that maybe we only saw saw the news bulletins 
at the time. And all we knew, knew about these people was that they had died, not how they lived. So for me, it's, it's quite a, a moving and inspiring thing. I totally understand, you know, the reluctance to kind of, you know, look misery and destruction, violent death in the face. But um, it's maybe a necessary thing for, for many as well. I'm sorry. Could you, could you say something about the children and probably even the adults, but especially the children whose lives were ruined by life-altering injuries? I know you mentioned children who'd been blinded, but there are other children, I'm sure, whose lives were ruined, whose families' lives were changed because of serious injuries. And we, we, and we, met, we met a number of them, and um, there is a whole... As I read out some of the facts and figures earlier on. There's, I would hope that this book, done by two journalists who were not historians, um, that this book would inspire other people to, to look at areas like that. Because I know when I did Children of the Rising, much to my shame, um, I just said the children who were killed. And I remember I was up in the CRC, the Central Remedial Clinic, and uh, one of the children who subsequently died, Michael, Gorgeous, gorgeous boy. He said to me, um, have you any idea how many children were maimed in the Easter Rising? And I hadn't. It's never been done. Now's the time to do it. Just in terms of learning and finding out what happens. Like I, I mentioned uh, Ray McGuigan earlier on. He was basically in a hospital bed in his house because he, he, was, as he was 15 when he was, his brother was killed and, and James uh, Keenan was killed in the same explosion. But there are so many areas that are, that are neglected at the minute. Now, maybe it's because of what that man just said, that it's too difficult or wouldn't be able to stomach it or whatever. But it has to be done. They are, they are, um, they are our children. They are our children. Yeah. And, you. and and you, you do just very briefly you do get a real sense of you know we know we were both very conscious of the extent to which this is just the tip of the iceberg um and, i mean to be honest i think everybody um in the north has been affected by this to a greater or lesser degree and you're very aware of you know the families the relatives i mean i mean even i i, I got home um on thursday um following the launch here in dublin and i bumped into into a nurse who's just who knew me who just said I saw, I saw you, you know, saw it in the news, whatever. And she said, by the way, do you know my best friend, her brother was the, the boy killed, one of the boys killed in Claudie. You know, so they, yeah, the bullets keep travelling. Sorry, one final question. Uh, thank you very much. Uh, I really enjoyed the talk today. Um, and I have read your other book, Joe, uh, in the, about the rising, and I encourage my students to read it. And I'm here with a group of students today, and today it was really important that we got to see and got to hear you because students, as a history teacher, I want my students to be aware of our past. And we often look away from Ireland when they get to the senior years, we look at things that are more interesting. So we teach them South Africa and we teach them the civil rights in America. And we've been looking about the innocents that have been, this, this particular group, we've been looking at the innocents that have been murdered in those events. But it is much more important for me, or, or as important for me, that we remember what has happened in our past. Like I was born in 1969, and when I'm teaching history, I'm teaching what I lived through. So for me, it's just extremely, extremely important that we don't whitewash our past, that we remember exactly what people, what people lost for us. Um, 
and to look at it from all sides. And I, it's about objectivity, I suppose, for me and for, for my students. Um, and I was really surprised at the very first thing that, Joe, you said that you found it difficult to get published. And I wrote down a question. Why was it so difficult to get somebody to take that? Maybe, maybe we can't what, forget. Because of what that man said yeah, there. You know, I, I know. To him. Um, and I, I don't like. I'm, I don't judge. I'm not judging anybody's else's opinion. But as a historian and as a teacher, and all of us fighting for to keep history alive in in the world today, we have to teach our children what happened from the time of the plantations right up to where we are today, and not to blame anybody, but so that they can create and remember how grateful, how lucky they are that they don't live through any of this. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this podcast from the Dublin Festival of History, brought to you by Dublin City Council. You can find out more about the festival on dublinfestivalofhistory.ie and by following us on Twitter, where we're at HistFest. Thank you.